The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to The Ascent of Board Games, Episode 1. We could sort of call this Episode 1A. We had a few technical difficulties the first time through, so this is going to be the clearly polished and superior version of what's going on. My name is Brian Schoner. I'm the guy that uh, is probably going to be doing the most talking because it's hard to get me to shut up. I've been an avid gamer of all kinds, board games, RPGs, video games, uh, for longer than I care to count, and it's good to have you with us. My name is Joe Streaky. I've been playing board games since I was a young child. My parents were big fans of like Monopoly and Clue and all kind of all those classic games. I've moved kind of beyond those games as well, but I certainly have had a life, lifetime love of games. I'm Jason Werend. Uh, I've recently gotten into board games. I played them as a kid just like Joe, but then there was a long gap where I didn't play any. I think I played Risk in college once, but uh, I'm definitely making up for it now. Uh, it's my personal goal to fund every board game on Kickstarter. I'm doing pretty well. I'm not happy unless my uh, bank account is crying in pain. And my name is Michael Kodab Hanft, um, and I've been playing board games all my life, starting he's, out. He's so young, that's not really all that long. With the Milton Bradley classics, moving on to D&D, um, video games, everything, the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. I'm Frank Branham, a massive game collector. I uh, still have about 3,000 games after having sold off 1,500 or 2,000. Uh, designer of a couple of games, Dia de los Muertos and uh, Battle Beyond Space. And a bit of a history of knowledge of history of old games. So uh, we'll be putting that to use. All right. So uh, to start us off here, we are going to be talking about deck building games. Um, So let's start off with uh, a definition of what we're going to say a deck building game is. Yeah, I think for the purposes of this podcast, what we're going to define a a deck builder as is a game in which each player is independently building a deck during gameplay. Um, These decks are going to be built from a shared market and will determine the future actions and resources available to each player. Yep, sounds good. So a couple things to point out about that. Um, A lot of people hear the phrase deck building and they might think of something like Magic the Gathering. Uh, That's not really a deck builder in the sense we're talking about because you sort of build your deck before the game, and then you go play the game. Uh, in deck builders, in the in the board gaming sense, we're all talking about one where you start with a, a limited set of cards and build onto that through the course of the game. No, but I think that's a, a good point, because magic is definitely a precursor to this. Sure. And, like, lots of games, like, have a lot of magic influences in them, right? Yeah, it was a it was a huge uh, huge impact on the game industry as a whole. So there's certainly some stuff that's reflected there. A lot of the the design ideas that you saw in Magic are certainly reflected throughout a, a ton of different games, deck builders and otherwise. Um, but again, we're, that's not what we're we're calling a deck builder here. Um, so there were a couple games that sort of played with the idea of deck building during the game a little bit, but the one that really kicked it off um, was Dominion. 
which was a, a Donald Vaccarino game uh, released in 2008 from Rio Grande. Um, and uh, Frank, I know you have a little bit of information about sort of the, the genesis of it or the early days. So Dominion totally came out of nowhere. Uh, basically, Donald Vaccarino turned up uh, at a convention to demo some games for Rio Grande and showed off a dozen prototypes. Rio Grande bought two or three of them on the spot, which is very unusual for that kind of thing. Uh, one of those is Dominion, obviously. And the original version of Dominion, they'd been playing with their group for five, six, maybe 10 years, a significant amount of time. The original version had 400 different sets of cards. Uh, but the big issue that Dale and Valerie had to do is to trim that down to only 20 or so for the original set and make them consistent, easy enough to teach. Uh, and I think that's part of the success of Dominion is it's simple. Yeah, they nailed it. They got the, the, the base set of cards is still an amazing set of cards to teach someone the way these mechanics work. Yeah, I mean, Dominion's my go-to on, hey, you've never played a deck builder? Let's break out Dominion. I'll teach you the basics. Yeah, it still holds up. Well, and it, it's, it's great because this is... I think one of the the most defining games in my recent history because it was unlike anything else at the time. Just the the variability that was in this base box just blew my mind. This is literally the second game that got me into board gaming again. Uh, first was Catan. That's kind of where everybody came yeah, from. Yeah, Catan. This is the first one, uh, of course, that I'd ever seen this mechanic in, and it, it it was very interesting to me, right? It was something that I'd never seen before, mechanics I'd never played with before, and it's led to a large amount of other uh, deck builders I've purchased in the years since. I think it's so interesting because Dominion is a game where everyone starts on the exact same footing, right? You start with the set, exact same set of cards. You have enough cards for two hands to start with. You shuffle them all together. So there's a little bit of randomness, but not a ton. And then you start building from there. Well, so I think before we go too much further, should we talk about kind of what exactly this deck building mechanic is while we discuss Dominion? So let's talk about the setup and how to play, because this game really is, I think, the purest distillation of building a deck. Well, it was was the prototype. This is where that whole mechanic really started. So the, the setup for the game is... Interesting in that every player, like Joe was saying, begins with the same set of cards. And it's, I think, seven gold cards, which are used as a... It's seven copper cards and three estate cards. And three estate cards. So the the copper is going to be used as a a resource to purchase new cards with. The estates are just kind of bogging down your deck in hand. I mean, they are victory points. They will count at the end of the game if they're still in your deck, but they're also not doing anything useful for you during the game. So from that that set of cards, each player is going to draw five cards to begin the game with. From those five cards, they can use what's in their hand to purchase a card or cards, depending, from a shared market. And so by base, right, you can play one action and you can make one purchase. There are cards that will give you additional purchases and cards that will give you additional actions. An action is is any card that's not money functionally, right? You don't have to play like your coins to get the money from them, but any card that says action on it, you have to play to get its effect. Yep, and that may be just giving you additional actions. It may let you move cards into or out of your hand or your deck. Uh, It may even let you interfere with other players. Depending on the set of cards you work with, 
So there are uh, there are 25 different types of, uh, of cards that are available in the market, and each game is going to have a set of 10 of them. One of the really clever things they did with the game is that they suggest, well, here are sets of 10 cards that are available for your first game or for a more interactive game or for a, a longer game, or you can just do them randomly. That's totally a Donald Vaccarino thing. When you look at every game he's done, like... Uh nefarious or kingdom builder they all have that variable scoring that really changes the game so that's the thing and i remember when the iphone app that would automatically give you a randomized set of cards came out it did so much to expedite the setup of the game because you could just go in and pull out those cards that were randomized for you rather than having to pull out a set of randomizer cards, draw those 10, then pull each of those out. It, it helps skip a step, which is going to be a common theme as we move forward, because at the end of each of these games, one of my biggest complaints with Dominion is the breakdown. Yeah, because you basically have to break down all of the decks back into their starting components and the individual decks, and it can get a little tedious. Um, one thing that I really like about Dominion is that they organize the game box really well. Uh, there are slots for each of the cards and they're all labeled. So you can, e it's, it's easy to store and find what you're looking for, but honestly, you're dealing with a ton of cards. There's, there's still a lot of manual manipulation going on. And considering how many games copy the mechanics of Dominion, I'm shocked at how few copied the box because that would really help with, especially some of the other games we're talking about today. Uh, just organizing everything. Oh, we'll be hearing much more about that later. <laughs> <laughs> but still talking about Dominion itself, right? One of the things I think is still really great about the game, looking back on it even now, is its its simplicity, its elegance is really, really uh, obvious, right? Like it obviously it created this new mechanic that a bunch of games went in and spun off into different features. But like Dominion still is a really powerful core game and i think it's obvious why rio grande was like yeah we'll take one of those please mm -hmm. yeah. and um with that original set of, of 400 or so different cards it obviously spawned a number of expansions that were all very successful over the years uh the neat thing is that each of those was kind of themed there was a seaside one which had you know pirate ships and and sort of each one of them added some additional layers of complexity you know different types of currency that you could get uh, you know, different types of actions. There was an, an alchemy expansion that uh, had yet another type of currency in it. Um, but it, it basically, it's a game that you can really sort of season to taste, uh, figuring out what you want out of it. So um, I think it's just a really uh, strong central, uh, central component and a great place to start this discussion because that's really where the idea came from. Well, and Dominion also introduced, I, th I think, another common thread found in a lot of the games that we'll be talking about today, and that is the concept of once you reach the end of your available cards, you shuffle your deck. So much shuffling. Yes. This game may, uh, well, with Magic the Gathering, may be single-handedly responsible for the American sleeve industry. <laughs> so like one other thing I think is interesting about Dominion and kind of some of the other games we'll talk about today is that it, it has a very much uh, inflection point in the middle of the game where you start as, hey, I'm trying to get more actions, I'm trying to get more buys, I'm trying to get more resources, and at some point you move from a growing footing to a trying to win the game footing, and you start buying the victory points that are going to cause you to win the game instead of focusing on, hey, let me get my engine moving. And like seeing when you need to make that transition in functionally all of these games is very important. 
and part of that strategy, while while you're trying to build your engine, while you're trying to figure out when that point is, is that you have a limited number of each of these types of cards. So as you're purchasing them, you're removing the ability of your opponents to purchase the same card. So it's another thing you have to keep track of. Hey, I want that card. Oh, there's only three left. Do I buy it this turn or do I wait? When you look at the sets of cards, right, people who are really good at Dominion can kind of look at the set of 10 cards that are available in the game and say, hey, I see a combo with three of these cards that'll be very easy to activate. So let me buy some of these and get it going. Whereas like someone else might see a different potential with more cards or potentially maybe it's a little harder to pull off. But like everyone normally will mutate very quickly away from kind of your base deck into decks that feel very different, play very different, do very different things within the bounded space of the 10 cards that are available for that game. Well, and again, I think the the strategy here um, is so perfect for teaching people these kind of base mechanics because if you, and, and we've all had that that early learning game of Dominion where we go in for those victory points too soon, our deck gets bogged down and it kind of deteriorates that engine that's been created in there. Yeah, it's, it's sort of a self-teaching thing because, you know, hey, look, I've got all these victory points and then I draw them in my hand. It's like, wow, I can't do anything this turn. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the appeal is it does teach the engine to newbies in a, a 45 minute time frame, if that even. Once you get used to it, it's faster. Yeah, it depends unlike on if you can set up a breakdown with that. <laughs> yeah, unlike a Euro, which blankets the table, takes two to four hours and your brain is melting by the end of it. Yeah, that's actually a really good point because you'll, at least I find with most deck builders, they tend to go pretty quickly, especially since there's a lot of, I can only do one thing on my turn or I'm limited by what's in my hand. I'm already planning my next turn. So by the time it gets to the next player, they're already able to take those actions and they're not slowing down going, oh, well, let me evaluate the board state and let me, let me see what I want to do. They've already kind of made that decision, but it can also change because someone might've bought that last card you were trying to, <laughs> trying to wait for. So I like them because they're good filler games, too. Um, they can go in between much longer games. Yeah, I haven't actually played Dominion in a while, but but talking about it makes me kind of want to get it more back to the table. So probably the next big uh, deck-building game to come out that really caused people to notice would be Ascension. Chronicles of the Godslayer! Which is now titled Ascension Deck-Building Game. Somehow they lost that. Uh, originally published by Stoneblade Entertainment, designed by John Fiorillo, Justin Gary. These are a couple of Magic the Gathering Pro Tour champions. So you know what kind of game they're going for. One of the things that really sets Ascension apart, in my opinion, is the way it handles the market. So in Dominion, all the cards that are available to you are just laid out at the start of the game, and you can make your decision about what you want to purchase on a turn-by-turn basis. Ascension takes a slightly different approach. You take all the car- all the monsters you're going to play with, all the other faction cards you're going to play with, shuffle them all together, and then deal out a market of six cards that are available for you on your turn. There's either the monsters which you defeat, they're, they're just removed from the board, they normally give you victory points or some other kind of bonus. The other option is a card that you will acquire and add to your hand. Any of those cards that you either defeat or you acquire are removed from this central market, and then cards from the top of the deck then replace them. Uh, the cards you buy are go to your discard pile. That is correct. Right. And that's that's true for most deck builders, if, if anyone isn't familiar with them. Generally, if you buy a card, you won't get to it until your next time through the deck. Well, and, and it's funny because I think what this did was it immediately addressed the, the concerns that I brought up with Dominion with the setup time. 
that expedited that process immensely in that you just pick up some cards, throw them together, shuffle, and bam, you're ready to go. Yep. Also having the uh, multiple currencies, you know, having the idea of that you you might have a hand that has a lot of power, so you're really good at defeating monsters, uh, or you might have a card that has a lot of uh, runes, which are the other ones where you can just buy more cards. You've got that sort of tension going back and forth, and if you happen to be building a deck that is very good at fighting monsters and no monsters show up for a while, you're going to have a problem. Yeah, the first time I played this game, I was so excited about the ability to kill monsters that I focused heavily on on the killing cards. And unfortunately, you know, luck of the draw, the, the market was nothing but buying cards. Like, I had no currency to make any of my purchases. So, like, I wasted round after round waiting for something that I could kill to show up. Right, and because the because there are two currencies and there's only a single central market, there's a natural tension between, hey... Do I have enough fight power to get points this turn because it's all monsters? Or, hey, do I have enough purchase power to set myself up for future turns because there aren't happen to not be any monsters on the board? And, you know, you can focus on one or the other, but it'll be kind of, it's randomness whether that particular strategy will work depending on the number of monsters or number of cards you can purchase for the, towards the end of the game. One other thing that's that's nice about the game is that there are always a couple of, of cheap options. So if you happen to have a deck full of fight and and there's no monsters on the board, there's always sort of a generic cheap monster that you can defeat and a generic cheap card that you can buy. So if the if the market swings one way or the other, um, you can still do something on your turn. So even though this this one deck market was really innovative and solved a problem in our group, at least it introduced a, a weird secondary problem, uh, a side effect, if you will, that that we dub the, the time, time vortex. vortex. You'll hear us mention this a lot. So, Joe, I'm going to let you elaborate on the time vortex because I think if I'm if I'm not mistaken, this was your coinage, at least in our group. It was. Uh, so it originally came from a Doctor Who episode where the master is staring at the time vortex and going slowly insane. They kind of talk about how when you look into the time vortex, either you go insane or you change in some fundamental way. And so the problem with the shared market is you can look at the shared market when it's not your turn, but you can't really plan on any any individual of those cards being there, especially not the best card that's in the specific market at the time. And so if you want to try to plan for your next turn, well, you look at all the currencies that are available in your hand and say, okay, cool, here's my best pick and here's my second best pick and that opponent on your left takes your best pick, the next opponent takes your second best pick and now you're you're back to square one. So you get you find yourself in this situation where if you're looking at the shared market, you might, on your turn, not have any of the cards that were originally there when your last turn ended there when your next turn starts. Yeah, so the Time Vortex is basically any game wherein looking at what's going on when it's not your turn to try and plan your turn is an exercise in futility. Because everything is going to change by the time it's your turn. I think I originally coined it when we were playing uh, Show Manager. Mm -hmm. And Show Manager has the ability for any player to spend some money to totally flush all the actors who are available for a specific show. And one of our friends was like, I don't like any of these actors, flushed it. And there was this one seven-point actor that I really wanted, totally gone. I'm like, well, now I can't even look at the market until it's my turn. And so that's, I was like, ah, just can't pay attention to this stupid time vortex thing. 
So yeah, Ascension has um, has a couple breakthroughs. One other thing I wanted to mention is that there are uh, what they call factions within the cards. There might be uh, constructs or sort of wilderness-themed heroes. The, the cards come in different sort of color themes. And uh, depending on what you have, you may get bonuses for having other cards of the same kind in play or discounts on other cards of the kind. So if you are starting to build a deck with a lot of greenish cards, it is easier and more effective to get more of those in the future if they show up in the market. So there's, again, a lot of different angles you can go in, and you can't really predict what your engine is going to be since you never know what the what the future will hold. To kind of address the the, the issue we've been discussing a number of times, the, the setup and breakdown being a challenge, uh, I'd say they fixed that problem, but it's only in the digital version where it's it's just an app that you run on. I play it on my iPad all the time, especially when I'm on a flight for work. It, it I mean, it sets everything up immediately. There's no cleanup. And you can just mess around with whatever decks you want and mix and match. It makes it very easy and uh, very, very uh, hard to go back to the physical copy. Yeah, the digital implementation of Ascension is really good. And uh, I I don't know that I've actually ever played with the physical cards since I found the app. Yeah, the multiplayer in the app is actually really good. So, some of the, hey, let's make a board game into an app, have run into some problems related to timing, right? Because, hey, I need to make some kind of interaction on someone else's turn and everyone has to wait for me to make this specific interaction. Ascension doesn't really have any of those things. And so, hey, you just take your turn and then when it's your, when it's your turn again, you take your turn again. Your phone will ping and let you know. Yeah. Now, I'm a little disappointed in some of the strategy with Ascension I found in playing it that oftentimes the best move was to just buy the most expensive thing on the board and keep going. I don't know that I'd agree with that. That's actually true in a lot of games, though. I mean, really, the good card is usually the most expensive. Occasionally, there's a case where as you start trimming your deck uh, or get cards that trim your deck and realize that that's true, that's important. But find that yeah mo- most of these games most expensive card good well i mean if it if it fits with the engine you're doing i mean sometimes just buying a card that's 8 points because it's 8 points if it's you know directly anti synergistic with the rest of your deck is going to be a problem but unlike in dominion the the randomness of what goes into your deck is determined by what order these sets of cards come out in whereas dominion had the randomness determined before you begin the game So oftentimes you can't really have a set strategy going into a game of Ascension because you don't know the order of the cards that will appear in, which again, I felt like oftentimes you'd look for the most expensive one you can afford and pick that one up. It's not a bad thought. I mean, there are certainly times when you may want to get multiple cheap cards because unlike in Dominion, you can always buy as many things as you can afford. But I will agree that as a general rule, more expensive cards are better, which is why they're more expensive. Like most deck builders, right, is the kind of the process of building your deck is really adapting to the situation of the game. I agree that Ascension puts that on highlight. Like it is the Ascension is pure adaptation to the the board state all the time. Dominion has some of that, but like it's much less of the focus. And like other games, like use it to to varying degrees. But I think it it's kind of a core concept of deck building games in general. Sure, and like you said, a a good Dominion player can sit down at a randomized table and say, "Okay, I need to buy this card, this card, this card, and this card, and all these other cards are are junk." Yeah, and that is a skill I've never developed. I really enjoy the sort of adaptive strategy I've, I've noticed that that's a theme in a lot of my favorite games is the sort of here's what i have to work with this turn what's the best i can do with that 
and the sort of advanced planning and seeing where the engine is going to be is just a skill I've, I've never picked up. So the next game that we're going to talk about came out in 2011, and that's Core Worlds, which was designed by Andrew Parks and published by Stronghold Games. One of the things that I feel that this game contributed to the deck building genre is a theme, a story that it's trying to tell. Like Dominion, you're building a town, but really you're collecting cards, putting them in your deck. Ascension, you're going and fighting monsters and great. But collecting cards and putting them in your deck. Core Worlds, you are uh, barbarians living on the fringes of the Empire, marching your way to the Core Worlds, pillaging, rampaging, and increasing your strength as you go. And it, it really does feel like that. I prefer the term uh, non-conventional living arrangement to barbarian, thank you. But, uh, <laughs> that, that's fair. And and the the... The feeling that you got by the end of the game definitely was, I feel more powerful than I did when I began. Yeah, that's the important aspect of it. You feel like there's progress being made. And you can literally see your progress as you conquer worlds. They go out in front of you. So you can see, I conquered this world, then this world, then this world, as I march towards the core. And when you're, when you're hiring a card, you're getting a specific starship or army unit or whatever it might be to build up your your fleet power or ground power to conquer future worlds so you're you are getting the sense that you're building your forces towards the eventual conquest one of the things that i think really adds to that is that there was a set of different decks and basically at the start of the game you would have a set of relatively low power cards relatively simple worlds to conquer and they would get progressively more expensive and and i think that's important because that fits in with that theme that first set of weak cards that you are purchasing and conquering are those that are located on the fringes of the universe they are basically the frontier that you're hitting first yeah so you're basically gathering your forces there and gathering momentum and getting better and better tools to conquer more difficult worlds as you go in towards the center of the galaxy Let's be honest, guys. You just like this game because it has three whole currencies, right? It has fleet strength, ground strength, and energy. More currencies More is currencies better. is better, right? That's the way it works. Exactly. Well, and it, it implemented those in a, a different way than any of the deck builders before it. Um, so one thing that this game did game-wise differently was it gave each player one action that they could perform on their turn. And those actions were split between... Purchasing cards from the, the common market, deploying cards from their hand, using deployed cards to conquer worlds, and that, I think, put a lot more in-depth strategy into when you are going to do the things that you need to do. Yeah, exactly. As you're playing these cards out in front of you, you're kind of tipping your hand a little bit in some cases, because if there's a really, really attractive planet that requires two ground strength and three fleet strength, that's kind of telegraphing to all your opponents, I might be going for that planet. And so they may change their plans or their strategy based off of that public knowledge. Yeah, honestly, that mechanic drives me a little batty. <laughs> the slow play, right? It's like one of the things I really like about Dominion Ascension is, hey, you take your turn and then you're done with your turn and you can your turn will come back around and everything will be fine. But in uh, in this game, you're kind of balancing, hey, how much energy do you have left? How many plays do you have left? How much... How, what is everyone else at the table trying to do? And it causes 
the game to slow down somewhat. And so if you're if you have a group of friends who have like analysis paralysis or something, the game can slow down an awful lot. And I have a couple of those friends. And so I cannot play this game with them because I am just driven slowly insane by the elongated turn sequence that this game represents. Yeah, that's kind of an Andrew Parks thing. If you play a lot of his games, there's always one or two things beyond what sane people would do. <laughs> I mean, they're all really hard. It's kind of like juggling something, but they're all sharp and poisoned and on fire <laughs> and then sentient. I, <laughs> I want to play that game. What's that name? At the same time, I think Andrew Parks is aware of that. Uh, another new mechanic that was put in there that uh, I think immediately addresses that length is that this game only plays for 10 rounds. Every two rounds, the market pretty much is wiped as you leave things behind on your conquest towards the core worlds. So, uh, I mean, I'm not going to disagree. This game definitely takes the quickness and expediency in play of Dominion and Ascension and throws it out the window. Yeah, it's definitely a more, a more thinky game. And because it's not a matter of I play my hand, I'm done. You play your hand, you're done. You know, everyone's taking a series of actions in a sequence. So you really have to prioritize. It's like, wow, I really want these two cards, but I probably need to get that one first because I think Joe wants it. I want to stop him from having it. And like this game, right? Like my enjoyment of the game, this game is very much based on the people I'm playing it with. I'm not a person who likes to sit here and analyze all my possible moves and then pick the perfectly right one. I'm... I'm a lot more free-flowing. It's like, oh, I'll do this move and it'll probably be pretty good. And since I have a pretty good intuition for that kind of thing, it normally works pretty well. Um, but, like, games where it's like, hey, a, a group of people who are like, hey, I want to analyze every single one of my turns are just going to bore me to death. And I think that's that's true of virtually any game you're going to play. Is that It depends on the people, but uh, getting a, a group that you click with is, <sighs> is crucial. Although we do need to get Dungeon Alliance to the table, you will so be into that. It's kind of a deck builder, Andrew Parks dungeon crawl Ooh, sounds like fun i'm always why, trying to why game. is it not here now <laughs> <laughs> bad planning mostly uh, you know speaking about how this game hits just everything i love andrew parks also introduced unique player powers and any time that you can introduce unique player powers into a game i I think that is a bonus. Yeah, they're not a huge difference. It's not really defining your strategy, but it is a little change from the previous games where everyone pretty much started exactly the same. They have an additional zero round where you draft cards that go into your initial stuff. And so it's it's basically what's giving you a the ability to go on your conquest during the story. And I, I think the game shines even more with that. Yeah, I like. I actually like the zero round a lot. It, it, in some ways, where like I like the fact that hey, you might be starting from a, a slightly different direction, even from the very first decision that you make than everyone else, as opposed to most deck builders where you have you kind of a set set of resources to start with and then you build from there. Yeah, I, I am willing to stipulate that card drafting makes everything better. It certainly makes terraforming Mars better for sure. Also, yes, but that's another podcast. No, that that's the same podcast. That's another episode. Of <laughs> another episode. <laughs> okay, good point. We haven't we haven't recorded that one yet. We'll find out. That's our food podcast. Yeah, plight of the subsistence farmer. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I just one last thing. There is something viscerally satisfying at the end of the game at seeing the line of conquered worlds and planets that you've you've taken over on your your march towards the core. That that's something that's kind of lacking in other deck builders, right? Because you're really just building out your deck. 
you don't get to see a progression of the you know quote unquote story here um, like you do in Core Worlds. Behold the swath of my victory. Exactly, or yeah. the very very small empire I managed to make after I got after I Aww. lost very badly. <laughs> you mean you don't like going back in Dominion and looking at all the marketplaces and pirate ships that you've collected? Look at all the blacksmiths I have. <laughs> so many blacksmiths. <laughs> All right, so kind of the next evolution in the, the deck builder concept uh, would kind of come from Marvel's Legendary series uh, from Upper Deck. Uh, that came out in t- 2012. Um, first, they started with the Marvel superheroes. Um, the big evolution here was you were kind of working as a cooperative team trying to accomplish whatever the mission was in that particular game. But in general, right, they still had the strategy of, hey, let's figure out who wins best at the end, right? So whenever you defeat a foe, you you take them into your personal deck, and at the end of the game, you calculate whoever, who was the best of the Marvel heroes. The most heroic. Who beat up the most, the most legendary, as I recall. And then they made one or two other legendary games. Or Again. 12, or... It's, I see 20. I, yeah, I can't count there's, that high. There's, there's two series, really, in this line. There's Legendary and Legendary Encounters. Yeah, there's the series we don't like and the series we well, do like. So let's talk about that. <laughs> but before we move on to uh, the, the discussion between Legendary versus Legendary Encounters, I, I do want to say that my biggest issue with the Legendary Marvel games is the feeling that I'm not a superhero. I mean, when I think about playing this game, I want to be Iron Man. You are going to be Spider-Man, you know. Yeah, but but in your hand, I have some Hulk cards. I have some Captain America cards. I have a little bit of everything. And you're not really working as a, a single hero. I mean, hopefully you don't have a little bit of everything because then you drafted really poorly. Well, but... I mean, we've established that I'm bad at games. Well, that's, so. that's fair. But you want to kind of draft similar cards because they'll have stacking Synergy. benefits with each other yeah they'll, they'll combo together yeah and uh you know it, it gets even more interesting because as you draft the cards from the same character it's the same art regardless of what the card is telling you they're doing it, that that base set of the marvel legendary game was almost unplayable because of that one flaw like just identifying the cards at a glance was impossible Upper Deck has not always made the best graphic design decisions, and that was a a particularly bad example. The good news is that as they expanded out in the Legendary series and went on Legendary Encounters, they redeemed themselves with some of the later games. The one we want to talk, we want to focus our discussion on, is Legendary Encounters, an alien deck building game, which is a mouthful if I've ever heard one. I mean, it's not like you know Chronicle of the God Slayer, but <laughs> it's close though. Let's let's face it; it gets even worse with Legendary Encounters, an alien deck building game expansion. <laughs> Yeah, fair point. So, so was we're that, just going to call it that. Is what it's alien. called. <laughs> was that named by a robot? What is going on here? <laughs> I don't understand. So, the game that we'd like to focus our discussion on is Legendary Encounters, an alien deck building game. It came out in 2014. It was developed by Ben Chikoski and Daniel Mindell. And fundamentally, the difference between the two types of games, the Legendary games versus the Legendary Encounters games, is pretty slight. At the top of the mat, you know, the, the gameplay mat, you have, in, in the Aliens game, the, this track is called the Complex. And essentially, as turns progress, another card is taken off of the Hive deck and placed face down uh, on this track. And as each turn progresses, another card is placed pushing the previous cards. They keep steadily marching 
towards the the combat zone which is the same thing that uh which was the same concept that legendary marvel also had which is this kind of like marching towards doom right like both games in both games you can lose because the game can sometimes win which was one of the things that make kind of all the legendary games unique now I will say one of my favorite features between the Legendary and Legendary Encounters deck is how those cards are presented. Um, In Legendary Encounters, an alien deck building game, um, those cards are placed onto this track face down, and you must use resources in order to reveal them. And doing so could provide or prove dangerous in the form of a face hugger or an alien with a special ability. Um, So it it really upped the tension and my goodness, the thematics. Yeah. That's, that's what I was going to say. It really is. It, it does add to the alien theme where it's like, there are, there are some blips on our radar and we know they're coming closer, but we don't know what they are. And I want to find out what it is, but if I found out what it is, it might rip my face off. So it really fits the theme of the stories very well. Someone needs to include a game overline, right? <laughs> One of the things I really like, about the Encounter series of games versus the pure Legendary series of games. The Encounter series of games are purely cooperative as opposed to Legendary games where there's cooperative elements and competitive elements, right? Like in Legendary Aliens, right, you will, you will when you're, hey, I'm going to go explore the complex, you're going to look at the next person and say, hey, do you have enough fight that if I get a facehugger on me, you can take care of it? Because I may not do that if you don't. And in a in a... In the legendary game, right, you don't have that kind of interaction. And the game is specifically designed to be purely cooperative. And in a lot of ways, like doing deck building in a purely cooperative game against a very hard hive deck is a ton of fun. They even further incentivize that with a uh, mechanic called coordinate, where you can literally play cards out of your hand to assist someone whose turn it actually is. So you're incentivized to assist people with that. And I love the coordinate mechanic because it causes you to be involved in other players' turns, which is one of the problems I have with most deck building games is, hey, I take my turn and then I'm kind of done. But with coordinate, I'm like, hey, do you need a thing? Hey, do you need a thing? I got a thing. Hey, does anybody have a thing? I want a thing. And it's, it's really, really helpful to keep everyone involved, right? Looking at their cards, seeing if they can assist you, seeing how you can assist other people. That cooperation, that um, that cooperative play had not been seen in any uh, deck building game prior to this. And it does really add a ton to this mechanic. Like, it feels so good when you pull out a victory together. Frank, do you agree with that statement because you were making a face? Yes, it was Mike. Wait, do I call BS on that? Wait, no, I I think it was the first co-op. So okay, we go. good. We'll, we'll let it stand. <laughs> we'll allow it. Okay. Um, the other thing that I really like about the this uh, the legendary alien is that you're you're going through a fairly specific story. Obviously, the set of enemy cards and stuff you're going up against is somewhat random each time, but there are sort of fixed storylines for the various alien movies. It's like if we're going on on you know uh, for the the first alien movie, you've got a particular set of objectives that you have to accomplish as a team, and a certain set of of threat cards that may come in, and then for aliens and the various other movies, which probably are better not talked about, uh, you, you get a whole series of stories, and they all feel very different, even though they're using the same mechanics. Well, and I, I'd kind of like to address the the fairly large elephant in this room, that the game does provide a variant in which a player can be a hidden traitor. 
Boo. Why would anyone do that? It it makes the game unnecessarily hard, I think. It allows me to fulfill my life's goal of reenacting Paul Reiser's role in Aliens. Oh, that that's actually a really good point. So one of the things that it does, and this is not an optional rule, if a player is removed from the game due to a facehugger, that player comes back as an alien. So I think that having that covers or puts a bandaid on this aspect of uh, player elimination because your character in this game can die. You can be removed from the game. So it, it again, just further adds to that tension and that story. Yeah, and there have been a number of games where there's literally one person left alive at the end who manages to, you know, use the the you know, atom bomb on the alien green or whatever it might be to, to finish off the game. And it is is rewarding even that uh, sort of Pyrrhic victory. One other thing you get to decide is you get to pick at the beginning of a game a role, and your role gives you a specific power and honestly kind of leads your strategy a little bit, right? It'll be like, hey, your, your specific role makes you really good at fighting. So, hey, you probably want to pick up more fighting cards so that you can fight all the fights, right? Yeah, I'm, one of the things, that, so just like a lot of these deck builders we're talking about, this does have a shared market, right, that you are spending um, your currency, uh, I think it's stars, is the currency um, to purchase them. They go into your discard pile just like other games. Uh, I have run into a lot of issues with this game where the entire market will be full of very expensive cards where you have no options to buy anything because everything's five stars or more, and there's no mechanic for flushing that which can be very challenging. Uh, another fun thing is a, a holdover from the, the legendary games. They have icons on the cards that will sometimes activate abilities. So it's really kind of jarring to see an icon that's a Hulk fist for <laughs> some of your actions. Although, honestly, the really challenging thing about the legendary games is getting them into a playable state. Really what happens is you get a big box of stuff that's randomly sorted cards, it takes hours to actually first play the game. Yeah, we, we talked about how great Dominion was in terms of the box and the packaging and, and the setup and everything. The Legendary games are, are not that at all. Yeah, for added fun, when you're trying to break out the game for the first time, there's a number of cards that have the same art, have the same effects, but are members of different decks. And you have to find a tiny little print that tells you what deck they're a part of. I can't tell y'all how many times I've had this box uh, fall open sideways on me, which like, oh no, I just make even thinking about it makes me want to cry a little bit because I mean the box is in essence a double wide card box that you would use for baseball uh, cards, which I mean upper deck is sticking to a shtick that they know I guess, but to add to that you also have a a really nice mat i want to just comment here this mat is nice it's sturdy it looks good you also have to fit it into the box though and so with my initial setup of the game because i did do not sleeve these cards i only use half the box filling in the rest of the space with the foam inserts that came with the box and just in an effort to give Mike a heart attack, there is a officially sanctioned uh, um, optional play where you can do Legendary Encounters Alien plus Legendary Encounters Predator to make Predators versus Aliens, <laughs> or Aliens versus Predator, I guess is more accurate. 
Can you imagine trying to put that away? No. Can you do the game mode where you are the predators and you're hunting humans? Because that sounds like a really fun game mode. You can actually do Sweet. That. <laughs> we should do that. That sounds like fun. Uh, but that also creates a really weird situation in that you can have a situation in which you are playing humans who are hunting humans, I believe. Yeah, the, the, the Predator deck's weird because most of the things you're fighting are humans, right? Uh, my favorite is Sleeping Guard. That's my absolute favorite. But yeah, I think you can play as, as Space Marines <laughs> fighting humans from the Predator game. Just for fun. Emergent gameplay is weird. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things I really like about Legendary Encounters, an alien deck building game, is that... TM. DM, is that the artwork was really great. Specifically, the Legendary Encounters Alien, the artwork was super amazing. Not true with all the games. If you look at Legendary Encounters Firefly, the artwork is really, really bad. Amateurish. I think, I think oh, the word is might say. Appalling. Awful. Like they, they should have just taken scenes from the mo- from the TV show, in all honesty. It would have been much better than the artwork they selected. But the, the, the specific artwork in Legendary Encounters Alien is just really top-notch. It, it is graphic. It is provocative. Uh, however, Sergeant, I'm looking at you. Too many fingers. And I don't understand that that decision because if you're familiar with the movie, you know the scene in which I'm speaking about. But it, they didn't want to put a, a person showing the middle finger, but they've got a man with an eye being lost, blood gushing everywhere, like... That rating system seems to be welcome. Selected. Welcome to America, Mike. Yeah. So the thing that makes me always sad is they come out with a legendary, uh, legendary Buffy or a legendary Trouble in Time. I'm like, awesome! I, I would love to play legendary counter. Oh, it's just a legendary. Hmm. Wah, wah. And then we are filled with sadness. Yes. But yeah, there are, are a lot of games in the in the series. Legendary Encounters and Alien Deck Building Game is, I think, the best of breed. Yeah, so uh, I made uh, the group play a couple games, just more modern, that did something a little different. First up was Mystic Veil from Jean, John Clare, uh, 2016 AEG. This one is interesting because it has, well, clear cards. Uh, John Clare also developed, uh, designed Gloom, which had those glorious, uh, gory and gory-esque oh, yeah, art. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what do you all think of that? Um, it's, it's interesting for, for those who haven't seen it, basically each card in your deck, and these are sort of oversized tarot deck sized cards has sort of a top, a middle and a bottom section. And most of those sections on most of your starting cards are blank. Uh, and basically what you're doing as you, you buy things that would normally be separate cards that go in your deck, your deck never gets any bigger, but you're basically taking a, a transparent thing from the market and adding it to an existing card. So your card might have something that produces currency on the top, and then you can add something else in the middle and something else in the bottom. So the card has multiple purposes. I really liked the concept of the game. It was it was simple, right? Like the there was not a lot of complexity going on, but like just the feel of like at the end of the game, kind of looking back through the, these cards you've created was really viscerally enjoyable. Right, the things that you end up creating out of this like look really visually interesting, kind of remind you of the gameplay you had. I thought all in all, like besides the game being not super complicated, like it felt very good. Well, and I, I think it did this interesting thing where it's it's you're less building your deck over time. You you start and end with the same number of cards. In fact, with the same cards, 
But what you're doing over the course of the game is building up each of those individual cards. So when you purchase something from the shared market, you need to make the decision, are you adding this to a card that is blank and you are making that blank card more powerful? Or are you going to add this to a card that already has some stuff, making it that much more powerful? So you've got either a diversity of card abilities spread out over many cards, or you have very few, very strong cards. Right. And and you can get certain combos going. There are cards that are better when you draw them if they have more of the same particular symbol on them. Uh, you can also make horrible mistakes like I did in my first game and put two cards that basically make this entire card unusable if I if I draw it, um, which in a relatively small deck was excruciatingly painful. Yeah, one thing uh, that Mystic Veil also adds is it has a push-your-luck mechanic where when you get uh, three of these symbols out, you immediately crash and basically miss your turn. But uh, yeah, putting multiple of those symbols on the same card is doomed. Yes, yes, I know that now. Yeah. So yeah, I think that the push your luck element is is really interesting. Uh, I like the idea of sort of shaping the cards to what you want to do. I, I feel like it's, you know, whereas Dominion kind of came in and, and was fully formed as an idea and obviously had a lot of ideas for expansion, this to me felt more like, here's a neat game mechanic and we're starting to figure out how to make it into a game. Oh, but it's got to be awesome. It has five commodities. Well, well <laughs> yes. I mean, the thing it definitely made me immediately interested in is the next game by the designer using this mechanic, right? Because, like, as soon as I heard he he had another game coming out called Edge of Darkness, which is coming out next year, and I'm like, I'm immediately like, well, I'm buying that game. Because, like, the, the mechanic was very viscerally enjoyable. And so seeing that mechanic kind of fully realized in a game that's kind of built around it as opposed to what was, in essence, a tech demo for Mystic Veil makes me extremely excited. I'm, I'm very excited to play that game. Yeah, I'm keen to see where it goes. One thing I'm, I'm going to add here, and we haven't really touched on this up to this point, but anybody who's ever played a, a deck building game up to this point knows you, you are sleeving those cards. Like if you want that game to have any sort of longevity, you're getting out a couple hundred sleeves and you're spending a couple hours sleeving those cards because it's all about the shuffling this game came with those sleeves and good good on them for that i i feel like that was a good decision to make this game not only playable but also give it that longevity yeah they're they're required to play the game but the, the fact that they do come in there is nice and i think there are spares along with it as well because yeah. sleeves do something and they split. split yeah yeah so yeah uh neat proof of concept keen to see where they go the other game I made you all play uh, is Aeon's End. This you, is you, a, say, you say that like we don't like playing games. Oh, oh, God, we have to play a game now. No, you will oh, play the game. Right. You say that like I don't already own all of the game, <laughs> which I do. Uh, I don't Frank's think you own all of the games. So I think Frank's got the edge there. Please send help. Frank no, no, all the games, all, all of Aeon's End. is forcing <laughs> us to play these games and then discuss them on the air. Uh, yeah, and Aeon's End is a co-op game with a lot of kind of sentinels. It's a... Uh, Designed by Kevin Riley, uh, produced by Indie Board and Card Games. Sentinels, you say? I'm, I'm sold already. Yeah, that's that's Sentinels of the Multiverse, which is one of uh, Mike's hot button games. So um, you'll probably hear a lot about that over the course of this podcast. Yeah, and Aeon's Inn has some differences as well as it likes its players. I mean, 
it's a very friendly game in a lot of ways. And and it's good that it's a friendly game because the the bad guy in the game just hates you with a passion and will crush your hopes and dreams. It's and, not an easy co-op game. And your town. Crush your town. Also, yes. <laughs> now, I think one thing this does to the cooperative board game scene or mechanic that Legendary did not do was it added a randomized turn order. So it, it eliminates this alpha player syndrome where one player is looking at the board deciding what the strategy is going to be and kind of pigeonholing everybody into that strategy with a randomized order you, you really can't do any of that it's we have a plan but i could go next or i could go eight turns from now and because of that random turn order it really enforces player engagement right you can't be checking your phone you have to be ready to go because you might be the next person that's called on to start attacking some monsters. Yeah, and, and you know, there will be times when you think you've got everything under control and then the bad guy goes twice in a row and everything is ruined. It's it's a simple change, but I think it does an awful lot to add to the game. Yeah, it also uses a tiered deck for the bad guy like a lot of those games, uh, or at least a lot, like Legendary uses Legendary tiered. does, yeah, yes. Totally. Uh, and man, when you get to that tier three, it just makes you want to cry every time. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And this was something that we initially saw in Core Worlds, where those first cards that we see are weaker. They're they're not quite as punishing in the cooperative version of the game of the deck building mechanic. And as you progress, theoretically, your deck is becoming stronger, but so are the enemies. So another mechanic that I really like out of Aeon's End that one one change that they made to the format is you don't shuffle your discard pile when you run out of cards. You just flip your discard pile over to create your new deck. And one of the things that allows you to do is you can now set your deck up to have some specific combos, right? So for example, one of the cards in the game is a diamond. And if you play one diamond, you get four units of currency. But if you play two diamonds, you get... Six or so, yeah. I'm sorry, you get two units of currency if you play it by itself. But if you play both the diamonds, you get six units of currency. You get a bonus two from that second diamond. So you can set up your discard pile in such a way that you are very likely to draw both of those when you flip the discard pile over to make your new deck. Also, it eliminates the need to endlessly shuffle your tiny, tiny deck of cards over and over and over again, which is really nice. Yeah, it is, however, uh, a, a question of breaking long-time habits. If you've played a lot of deck builders, every time I play that last card, it's like I flip the deck over and I start to shuffle. It's like, nope, I don't do that. Just put it down. Well, and I mean, this is such a simple change, but it adds a ton to the strategy and in, in the method that you play the, the, the cards out of your hand. I mean... I'm even sitting here thinking about if this same change was applied to a game like Dominion, like that would be an entirely different game. Yeah, totally. There's a couple other things that Eon's in I like. It really forces you to specialize your characters, even though you're playing co-op. I think you're much more successful if you go, okay, I'm going to go build a hitter deck. Uh, you work on, you know, getting surges and powering up people's surges. You know, you work on buying stuff um, as well. And so, and deck destruction is also a huge part of that game. You really need to trim the crap out of your deck. Yeah, we, we haven't talked about that that much in some of the earlier games. But, you know, as anybody who's, who's played any deck builders would realize, there's going to come a point when a lot of those early cheap cards need to get weeded out of your deck because they're just filling up your hand. 
and uh, some games do a lot of that, some games don't do much. In Aeon's End, there aren't a lot of options to do it, but the ones that are there are really important because there's just some crap you need to get rid of. Well, that, that actually brings up one thing that I've noticed, and again, we've played this now twice. I personally felt like the market cards, which Aeon's End has gone back to a randomized set of cards that are placed into the middle of the table, each with their own stack. So it each has a different deck that you are drawing from, but that market just felt really small to me, very limited in options, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it did make me want to see more. It definitely felt very intentional, right? Like, hey, you have a small number of options to defeat this big bad. The part of the punishingness of the hardness of this co-op cooperative experience is hey your market's pretty small like we ran out of most of the market cards by the end of the game we'd purchased them up and they're like now there just weren't cards to buy anymore and those cards are limited as well there are six or seven copies of each of those cards to split among players interested in buying them yeah there were a couple cards that i think we we wanted to make sure everybody had at least one and i think once everybody had one there was only one left so it's a, it is a limited resource. And again, that forces that specialization. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And it, it does fit nicely with the theme because the premise is basically some sort of hideous monster is coming to attack your town. And so it's going to be generating various monsters and attacking you. And in most cases, when the monster goes, it's going to do damage to the town. So it doesn't matter how strong you how strong you are individually. If it does enough damage to the town, you have lost. And that co- is also going to be determined by the bad guy that you're fighting. Each of these bad guys has a different tactic, has different ways of winning and messing with the players. Yeah, and there are how many uh, bad guys there in the base are, game? There are, I think, four in the base game. They did an expansion that's the same size. I think there's a total of like 10 different bosses. And then there's a whole legacy expansion that they kickstarted, which I am all about. Yeah, I'm excited to play that as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting this one on the table again. I'm a, I'm a big fan. One other game I wanted to mention sort of briefly, which I think is an interesting one, is uh, Friday, uh, which is a game by Friedman Frieze uh, from 2FSPL. It was 2011 or so. It's a solitaire deck building game. You know, it doesn't do anything particularly innovative structurally. You're, you're Robinson Crusoe. Fundamentally, you're stranded on an island and you're going through a deck fighting things that you have to, you know, that are, that are trying to eat you. Uh, basically building up your strength and resources to get strong enough to defeat the pirate ship that you will need to get off the island. Um, you have wound cards that clog up your deck. It's Like I say, it's nothing especially innovative, but I think it's a fun concept, and, and doing it as a solitaire game lets you not worry about analysis paralysis and get really sort of tactically into it if you want to dive deep. I think it's probably also worth talking about uh, Clank, uh, which is, was released in 2016, designed by Paul Dien and published by Renegade Game Studios. And one of the big additions that they have to the deck builder, besides being intentionally very simplistic, right, so it's easier for younger kids to pick up, uh, there's a board that has a pressure luck element to it as well, right? So you're moving along the board, playing cards from your hand to do movement, and you sometimes the cards you play to do movement also cause noise, and if you make too much noise, you begin to wake up either the dragon or robots, kind of depending on the specific setting that you're playing in. And that noise is collective among all players. Yep. So if one person is playing a lot of noise, it can uh, mess no. up the strategy. No. no, Clank is comes from your deck only okay. and you pick it up. Sorry. Okay. Never mind. No, but I thought there was a, I thought the waking up of the dragon was a shared thing. 
Uh, when you pick up dragon eggs, they help progress the dragon so that he causes more of the clank of the damage cubes to go in. That's yeah. oh. been too long since I've played clank. But yeah, with clank, it's not much more complex than Dominion at all. Uh, and the board adds kind of a thematic feel that's really missing from the simpler of those games. Uh, I mean, it feels like a dungeon crawl in a lot of ways. And it's gradually they've been doing four expansions. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's definitely targeting kind of a younger demographic. It's kind of like a way to get younger kids into, right? The theme is a little bit more, a little lighter, a little bit more entertaining. There's a little bit more, the pressure luck mechanism normally works a little better with kids than, you know, like, hey, you're specifically trying to build an engine and and build an empire, but really just just this card that said the Dominion has. Yeah, and you say it's for kids, but it's probably the one we most played recently, uh, most of, so... Nothing oh, wrong with it. Nothing. Yeah. Uh, nothing wrong with it. I'm just saying, like, if it, it feels, it definitely feels like part of the intention, right? Based on the artwork, it's lighter. Based on the the lightness of it, is like, hey, you can also have your kids play this game, and they'll enjoy it, and they'll get it, right? I feel like that's definitely was intentional with the game. Well, one other game that's definitely worth talking about is Dragonfire uh, by Catalyst Games, designed by Randall N. Bills, and um, Dragonfire is interesting because it's a campaign game but also a deck builder. But none of the deck building, com- most of the deck building components don't move from game to game, right? There are very few cards you get to keep from game to game. You get to keep magic items that you acquire. Um, but most of your progression is based on this sticker set. As So as you gain XP, you can purchase stickers which mod- either will modify your space deck or will give you some extra power that you have all the time that will make you kind of more equipped to handle harder and harder challenges. Uh, the game is actually based on a system they actually created for Shadowrun Crossfire, which uses the same sticker mechanic, um, but kind of died on the vine due to lack of common support for the specifically the Shadowrun IP. And now they've re-released with the D&D IP, D&D IP a lot more popular. <laughs> And that kind of slowly add things to your deck is creeping into a lot of games. I mean, you see it in Gloomhaven, Perdition's Rift, uh, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Uh, I, I really want to like this game. Um, the, the, the Crossfire and Dragonfire series, it, it feels like a game that is really good. But when actually playing the game, I feel like every time we sit down to play... I'm restarting from square one. I don't feel that progression that I do in Core Worlds. Like, just something about that game. I love the parts. If somebody told me about this game, I would be all over it. And I am all over it. I love the thought of this game. Yeah, that's that's. I think we could make an entire episode about games we really want to love but but can't. Yeah, I think the challenge with that game is the fact that you're using the same market cards game after game after game. So as your character might be changing a little bit, you're not seeing any new cards. You don't have any new abilities from those cards. And at the end of the game, every card you bought goes right back into the pile. And like the stickers, while while it's definitely nice, you definitely get power as you add more stickers. None of them add each individually a lot of power by themselves, right? So you are very incrementally becoming more powerful. It's not like you're becoming a lot more powerful with each new sticker you add each each sticker is very incremental and doesn't make you feel like oh yeah i've definitely like leveled up right in like D terms or anything like that one game that has that uh, kind of 
add to your deck that's a little more interesting is Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle. Uh, it's by Cami Mandel, Andrew Wolf. Instead of uh, basically just adding one card to your deck and not changing the market, it pulls in a whole box of cards each game, which go into your hands, the market, and adds a couple of mechanics each round. It's a little more interesting because of that. Well, and I think that's where Dragonfire kind of falls flat for me. The the kind of apex card that the wizard class can get is Fireball. And, I mean, let's face it, Fireball's a third-level spell, guys. Nerd. And re- I think one of my big problem, biggest problems with Dragonfire, and I like Dragonfire a lot, is that all the top-level cards feel so expensive. Like, Fireball is good enough that you want to buy it even though it's so expensive but for the other ones you're like i'm not even gonna bother buying those they're too expensive their their cost to benefit ratio is just not there compared to a cheaper card like bless or something now we should talk about the currency in this game unlike the other deck builders currency is not actually from your deck currency are chips that you acquire when you defeat a bad guy um, and is kind of spread out among the the players so you're not actually clogging up your hand uh, or your deck with the currency that you are buying new cards with, which is interesting. It, it takes that aspect out and makes everything in your deck an action that allows you to do something. And because of the way it pays out, you're actually incentivized to be the one who lands the final killing blow on the monster, right? Because it pays out starting with you going around the table. So, hey, if it if there are four players and there are five chits of currency you get two everyone else gets one which is only fair really yeah exactly uh so yeah i mean there there are a lot of good elements and ideas in this game it just doesn't quite seem to come together i think so the way some of us would like us to i mean i i love me some shadow run i i really wanted uh crossfire to be an awesome game and it's fine but i wanted more So I want to bring this conversation full circle by going back to one of my newest favorite games, and this is uh, Millennium Blades, designed by D. Brad Talton Jr. and produced by Level 99 Games. Uh, This was released as a in in 2016, and this game is split into two different phases. Um, One phase in which you are building a deck, and the second phase in which you are using that deck. Um, during a tournament-style showdown. Um, the theme for this game, for anybody who isn't familiar, is that you are a per- a player who is playing a player of collectible card games. And yes, it's as meta as it sounds. Um, what it does is it goes back to those Magic the Gathering and other collectible card games that kind of spawned into the deck-building mechanic, and it takes the meta game of those collectible card games and turns it into a game. Yeah, when you're buying cards from the market, you're actually buying a booster pack from a particular expansion, and you don't know exactly what it is because those cards are face down. You'll have some idea of what mechanics may be on it, but and it basically represents the idea that at the higher competitive levels, if you buy a booster pack, there's really only one useful card in it anyway. But it's it's certainly a lot of fun. Um, all of the quote-unquote expansions are, you know, massive pop culture references and parodies. Um, there are a lot of parodies of sort of the gamer stereotypes and that sort of thing. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I mean, as a game, it's it's good. It's not something I, I jump up and down and want to play. I don't, I don't dislike it. I would certainly play it. But um, just the execution of the theme is extremely well done. That's actually a level 99s thing. Um, really, 
he takes games and it's really mostly just brad he basically takes a concept from video games or something well known in kind of gaming culture and turns it into a game i mean he's got street fighter battles some of kind of tactical rpg-ish kind of games and he nails every single one of them so if you like that and want a game version look there okay good to know one of the things i really like about millennium blade is there is pieces of the game that actually take place in real time right so all the players are instead of going around the table taking actions all players are kind of taking actions as quickly as possible kind of like drafting so this is the portion of the game where you're drafting your deck setting up for the next tournament so you're either buying cards face down to get card packs you're buying them face up from the available market knowing what they're going to be and you're kind of rushing with other players if something drops into the available market and someone else wants it you got to beat them to it you got to grab it first out of there i feel like that the live portion of it is a lot of fun so another area that we wanted to spend a little time talking about is games that aren't really a deck builder but you can sort of see it from there and and they're a group that we've we've called bag builders uh the premise basically rather than being putting cards into a deck you're putting Uh, tokens of some kind into a bag and then later on you're going to be randomly drawing them out based on what's in there um there are a couple examples of those recently and uh i know joe's got a particular favorite he wants to start with well yes i i really love the heck out of this game specifically uh yggdrasil uh by ludinate and z-man games ludinate was the french publisher and z-man was the american publisher and designed by uh, cedric lefebvre and fabrice ravellino and it is one of my one of my favorite games. It's, it is a really strong uh, all the players versus the board game, which is that all the players are participating in Ragnarok and trying to stop the the fall of Asgard. Uh, the specific component we're talking about here, specifically the the realms of man, are composed of bags that that are made of both human vikings who are positive shits in the game or attack power in the game and fire giants who are negative and so when i I should point out that the bags aren't actually made of humans we're not monsters that they contain tokens which are humans or fire that's fair i mean like they are made of human skin in in the reprint but oh sorry i i I, I didn't back that kickstarter on day Uh, one apparently yeah i've got that that one (laughs) that's the special limited edition release that's correct uh, but I really like the game has a very interesting strategy around those, right? So because the game is hyper limited, right? It is it is very much a hey, you have a very small number of actions, and in these bags, right? When you want to go get power to go fight off these evil entities, yo, know, the world serpent, you want to go fight off Loki, you want to fight off Fenrir, you need to play Vikings to power that, and the way you get Vikings is from these bags. And there are different distributions in each of the bags, right? The bags that are closer will have more fire giants and less Vikings. And there are ways you can manipulate the ratio in the bags, adding more Vikings, taking out fire giants. But every time you pull tokens out of those bags, you do it blindly. And so there's this kind of tension between, hey, do I want to go move out to go get to the better bags? Or do I want to spend a bunch of time getting the bags that are nearer to me at the start of the game into a better state so I can just subsist on those bags as opposed to having to walk all the way out to the further bags that have a much better base ratio of Vikings to fire giants. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a neat balancing act. And uh, the game overall is very well put together. This is a, a, a small part, not a small part of it, but it's, it's one of many elements in the game. And I think it's, it's well executed. Uh, another one that we've been pretty fond of lately is uh, Viva Java, which is a, a coffee brewing game. Basically, there are 
uh, a number of different colors of coffee beams that you are, are collecting over time and putting into your bag. This was designed by T.C. Petty III, and it was published originally by Dice Me- Hate Me Games, which has since been acquired by Greater Than Games. I should remember Dice Hate Me Games because Dice Hate Me. At any event, uh, you're putting these various colors of coffee beans into your bag and trying to uh, pull out the right colors to get a particular blend of coffee, which will score you points. And there are uh, teams or cooperative elements, you know, if, if you and a few other players are brewing at the same time, everybody is pulling something out of their bag. And depending on what you have in there... Uh, and what you uh, what you're trying to achieve, you know, maybe the sort of thing where I need Frank to draw beans because he has a lot of green ones. But as soon as he draws a black one, he has to stop because if he draws another black one, then we're doomed. And there's a lot of balancing that goes on in the game. I, I think it's pretty clever. Another game in that genre of genre mechanic, whatever the bag building thing, uh, is Hyperborea which is uh, published by Asterium Press and three other companies designed by Andrea Ciarveslio and Pierluca Zizi. It's Italian. I'm pretty sure it's Italian. We're, we're going to be so good at pronouncing all these European languages soon. Yeah, totally. Hyperborea is basically a 4X kind of dudes on a map game, um, but it uses bags, uh, basically cubes to power your actions. You get so many cubes, you can buy cubes that go in your bag. But it's totally got a 4X thing where you're moving guys, conquering regions, getting stuff, building up technologies. And so it doesn't add much, except that it's a 4X game. Yay! <laughs> Fair enough. So uh, that sort of covers our our big, uh, you know, the, the high points in the history of deck building. There's obviously a ton of other games out there, many of which are uh, either just straight up dominion clones or or games that you know do use the mechanic but don't really add anything exciting to it yeah this is this is not an all-inclusive list that would take us we we don't have that kind of time um but if you want to go out uh you can always search board game geek just uh if you click on one of these games under the list of of mechanics it'll it'll list deck building and you can get all the games you could possibly want and probably some that you don't so probably what I'd like to talk about at this point is is what is our favorite deck building games? I know we all have opinions about those. Um, of these, uh, I've never been a huge deck building fan, uh, which sounds like an odd thing for me to say. I mean, I don't dislike it as a concept, but very few of them really have clicked for me. Um, I like Ascension a lot, largely because it's it's easy to, to deploy. You don't have to deal with a lot of different card combinations and that sort of thing. And I, I like the sort of dynamic, ever-changing market. But uh, honestly, I think uh, Aeon's End is the one that is really grabbing me right now. It's it's new. It's a tight, difficult co-op game. Uh, it's doing some pretty cool things with the random turn order and such, and I'm really looking forward to playing it again. I think of all the games we we talked about, I think my my true love is still Legendary Encounters, an alien deck building game. The theme and the way the mechanics weave together is just so perfect. Though I do agree with Brian that I'm very interested in getting Aeon's End to the table again and, and giving it a couple more plays. So I I hate to be a me too, but I, Aeon's End, Legendary Encounters, I, I really enjoy both of those games. Uh, I did want to talk about one that we didn't mention on the earlier in the podcast. Unsurprisingly, it's a kickstarted game uh, called Xeno Shift. Came out in 2015 by Michael Chennault. Um, what I like about this game, it's not necessarily doing anything truly unique necessarily, but it did take a lot of uh, kind of revisions and kind of nice mechanics and put them all into one package. So in the game, it's essentially a tower defense game. You're protecting a base uh, from an oncoming horde of monsters. 
you have a shared market you're playing with that you're using cooperatively that is at unlocked at different tiers so they get more powerful as the game goes on but they do a, they get rid of a lot of kind of the minor annoyances i find in deck builders you can get rid of your 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 earlier cards very easily in fact as you progress wave to wave you actually automatically clear out some of your earlier cards and you can use earlier cards to get discounts on later cards um it, it allows you to basically keep the game flowing. And when you purchase the cards, they go immediately in your hand. So you're not wasting time waiting for that to, to discard and shuffle in. And that game does have a, a great um, digital implementation as well. When, once we got it to work. <laughs> say when it wasn't crashing. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say that mine is, is Legendary Encounters Alien deck building game as well. Not only is it one of my favorite deck building games, it, it's probably one of my desert island games like if i had to play a game for the rest of my life i i could probably do it with that game um i do want to take out the take a minute though to give give a shout out to dominion though if i had to teach someone this mechanic that would probably be the one that i would break out oh no no no! i'd be breaking out clank but mostly because Dungeon crawl, dragons, eating, death, noise. But no, as far as the actual game that I want to play is Aeon's In. In fact, we after our session last week, we dragged it out twice and took out War Eternal uh, to do back-to-back games and finally beat that guy who's really awful. (laughs) But no, I mean, it's friendly. When you do your first setup for the game, you just pop open the decks. There's a quick start sheet to set up everything it's wonderful nice all right well that is pretty much our show so uh hopefully someone is actually listening to this and and you like some of what you're hearing we're going to be uh doing this uh hopefully for a long time going forward so hopefully we'll get to talk about games that you really like uh if there are deck building games that you want to tell us about that we've obviously forgotten or tell us that our opinions are wrong or that we sound funny or that we've pronounced your name wrong or whatever it might be oh they'll do that anyway oh sure well yeah given um but uh you can contact us via email at ascentofboardgames at gmail.com we are on twitter at ascent of board games we are on Instagram at Ascent of Board Games. The astute among you may have picked up a pattern here. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ascent of Board Games. And you can also find our website at, wait for it, ascentofboardgames.com. So please uh, drop us a line, send us a tweet, like us, please like us, and uh, let us know what you think. And in the meantime, thanks for listening. We're out of here. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentofBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. What is going on here? (laughs) I don't understand.